Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what we do here is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal the real history underneath it. What we're doing this time round is the very lengthy named The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power TV show. One ring to rule them all. And this is so big and dense and rich. I know that this is coming out towards the beginning of the first series, but I'm pretty sure we'll be returning to it. We might even continue to return to it in the first series, but this is not a Lord of the Rings podcast. As I say, I take pop culture, but Tolkien is just such a rich vein of pop culture that is clearly influenced by history. And indeed, I'm going to say the very first one of the new version of this podcast. If you don't know, it's been running for years and years and years. The editor, Greg, Greg Chapman, shout out to him. Oh my God, he's a dream. He used to be actually the co-host with me and we used to have a conversation about various historical topics. But that changed in the COVID times because everything changed in the COVID times. And we rejigged things. This is, if you like, the spiritual successor of a sister podcast, Neon, which I ran for years. I wrote and presented that. It was edited by the brilliant producer, Dan Morrell. Dan, shout out to you. Always have full lots of love to you. And... So this is sort of like linked to that. Hope you enjoy this. But if we're talking about Lord of the Rings, we are talking about, well, in the case of this TV show, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Roman era, the Anglo-Saxons, obviously, that's an obvious go-to really, and also Viking epic poetry. We're going to be talking about literary history and even TV history as well. So there's lots of stuff to be talking about. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to go into a lot of plot of this series. That's why I might well do another one. But instead, I think a great place to start is why on earth are we watching this TV show to begin with? As I said, already done one literally on Lord of the Rings. So if you're wondering why I don't keep referencing the movies and stuff like that, have a listen to that one. Came out more than two years ago, so enjoy. But let's talk a little bit more about Tolkien himself. Lots of people say this is allegorical of this and this is allegorical of that. My favorite example of how people have laid allegories onto something that 
kind of wasn't there, is the famous tiger that came for tea. Do you think I could have tea with you? Which is a kid's story about a little girl who lets a full-grown tiger come into the house to have tea. And her parents very irresponsibly agree to this. And this has been seen for a long time, many decades, as an allegory of communism. Allowing communism into the home kind of thing. Obviously, this was written in the West. It was written at the time of the Cold War. But the author literally has been on fire going, no, that was never my intention. Now, clearly, some things are meant to have an allegory. I'm thinking 1984. A little tiny bit of more about 1984 in a, in a little bit. But that is obviously an allegory for all kinds of things, all kinds of fears for the second half of the 20th century, most of which came true. So, yeah, that's kind of depressing. However, the thing about Tolkien is you have to understand that this is a man who, as a teenager, for fun, taught himself Anglo-Saxon or Old English. So he just lived in his own world. This is a man who went on to be a professor of Anglo-Saxon history and, again, obviously the language side of things as well. He has done his own translation of Beowulf, and it's a very poetic interpretation, whereas other interpretations are literally translating it word for word. He is translating it into the tone of what the original was meant to be like. Others have translated it quite literally. So there we go. That's what you need to know about this man. Yes, he served in World War I. If there is clearly one bit of his past experiences that are there in the actual books of Lord of the Rings, it's the Dead Marshes where there had been a once great battle and there's these ethereal bodies still floating in the swampy area. He fought in the Somme, so... It doesn't take a literary genius to work out he's probably using his past experience from war and putting it into a fantasy setting, okay? There are a few elements there, but it goes into all kinds of really weird areas. I've heard a number of people, and I think I mentioned this briefly in our Dungeons and Dragons episode, if you if you like Lord of the Rings, you'll probably like that one. Have a listen to that episode. That one was sort of saying that there are some people who talk about how we shouldn't have races because that's racism. And it's like, well, maybe we're using the wrong word. But the fact is that an immortal elf in the world of Dungeons and Dragons and indeed in Lord of the Rings, an immortal elf who's literally had millennia to hone their skills as an archer will be better than a human archer like a shark. An average shark will still be a better swimmer than a gold Olympic medal winning swimmer of a human. So, yeah, in that regard, it's not racism that way. But, you know, why are you getting worked up about racism about orcs or elves? Because you know what? Those things don't exist. The problem with racism is when we start segregating actual real human beings. That's the problem. So, uh, do you know what? I'm not going to give these people any more brain time. But yeah, look, if you want to get offended by stuff, you can get offended by anything. So that was never the point of Lord of the Rings. Again, if you look at the man himself, he is clearly riffing off the epic saga writing that is traditionally associated with the Vikings. But the Anglo-Saxons came from a very similar culture. And indeed, I mentioned Beowulf. The importance of Beowulf, if you don't know, it's the first ever written story in English. Now, it is a very different English to what we 
talk nowadays. But that's the start point. Indeed, it wasn't even meant to be a book. It's clearly somebody has written down an epic poem that would have been told around a campfire over perhaps several evenings. So that is what he's going for. And therefore, I'm going to say that Lord of the Rings is the greatest, most important, best-selling book that's badly written ever. What did you say? Now, badly written is harsh, but again, I mentioned 1984. That came out in, well, 1948, 1949. 1984 is, I believe, a quite terrifying masterpiece. So terrifying, in fact, I don't think I should like to read another like it. I'm not absolutely dissatisfied with it. I think it is a good idea, but the execution would have been better if I had not been under the influence of TB when I wrote it. And look, we can also talk about things like, I don't know, Catcher in the Rye or something like the first few Bond books written by Ian Fleming. The point is this, I mean, I'm picking rather different books here, but... By the 1950s and into the 60s, people were writing quite differently than they were from the 1920s and 30s, let's say. Literary movements had changed and the way we explain things had moved on. And therefore, when the Lord of the Rings trilogy landed with a great big thump in the 1950s, they were just stodgy. By modern standards, or at least by mid-20th century standards, it's like, God, how many times are they going to tighten their belts? And there seems to be an inordinate amount of explanation about woodlands and hills. And ugh. Yes, compared to something like the original James Bond books, you're absolutely right. But... Again, if you look at things like Beowulf or the epic poems of the Vikings, they all do the same thing. That's what he's drawing from. He's not trying to be the new To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. He is going from a completely different literary tradition. If he's uh, been brought up as I was on ordinary history and uh, on his reading, that will be the material out of which he constructs. So that is what's going on with the books. Now, to be clear, we had The Hobbit first, and when they were eventually turned into movies by Peter Jackson, there was big complaints that it's like, hey, this is a kid's story, and yet he's making it sort of so big and grand. Well, I ask you to go back to the original Hobbit, because while the start of it is very childlike, like a fairy tale, by the end of it, you literally have the Battle of the Five Armies. It's like, as he's writing it, he's getting into more of his style. He is finding his voice throughout The Hobbit. So quite frankly, as a book, it starts suitable for like six-year-olds, and by the end of it, it's more of a challenging read. You know, it's more like aimed at 10, 12-year-olds. Didn't take him that long to write it, but that's why, from the point of view of Peter Jackson, when he was trying to make the Hobbit movies after he made the Lord of the Rings movies, if he followed the first half of the book too closely, it would look like a completely different universe to the rest of the movies. And yet Bilbo Baggins is a key character. Well, he's the main character in The Hobbit, but he's still a key character in Lord of the Rings. So you kind of have to keep the tone going. And seeing they started with Lord of the Rings, three books, therefore three movies, makes complete sense. 
I am more than happy to admit that The Hobbit is bloated, okay? It did not need three movies. And while the bit in the second movie, while they're chasing Smaug round the Lonely Mountain, this sort of epic clash, the point is, I already know what's going to happen next. And so the, that really exciting 20 minutes of, of action, we all know is ultimately futile. And indeed it is futile, and it therefore ends on a cliffhanger. If they just kept it at two books, perhaps filled in a little bit, I have no problem whatsoever having the necromancer in it. He is mentioned in passing, and even as a kid, knowing that the necromancer is actually another name for Sauron, it's like, wow, I would love to see that part of the story told. And indeed, Peter Jackson did tell it and told it well. And it also explains why Gandalf keeps wandering off. If this is such an important journey in The Hobbit, why does he keep getting distracted? Surely he should stick with the dwarves heading off to the Lonely Mountain. But no, he keeps fading in and out of the story. Now, part of that is for the point that if you have an all-powerful wizard with you at all times, there's no drama there. There's no struggle there. This is the same thing that Tolkien has said about the eagles in Lord of the Rings. There's lots of people have said, eh, well, if the eagles are that great, why don't they just fly straight into Mordor and just drop the ring? Tolkien's been on the record saying, if I did that, I don't have a story. So there's a very practical literary point there. But he has actually created a lore, L-O-R-E point, which is Sauron's yet to be defeated. The reason why you see the skies are clear when you do is because Sauron has been defeated at that point. The ring has been destroyed. If they tried to fly in beforehand, there would have been lots of orc archers and scouts and the Nazgul on their fell beasts could have perhaps taken them down and just, yeah, it probably wasn't going to work if we're going to stay in the universe for a moment. However, what is interesting about all this is I've yet to even get to the TV show. And like I say, we've got some TV history to be talking about here. The thing is that The Lord of the Rings is basically the biggest selling book of all time. I know there's the Bible, okay? Let's put that to one side. It's kind of an exception. But as mega as something like Harry Potter is, as mega as the Da Vinci Code, or Fifty Shades of Grey, or whatever. Hey, book sales have got nothing to say. I'm number one and two. You're under Fifty Shades of Grey. These are the sorts of books that go beyond literature, and suddenly everybody's talking about them. They are pop culture, popular culture. And Lord of the Rings is definitely it. But Interestingly, Lord of the Rings was never meant to be a trilogy. We again have to go back to war as to shaping this book a little bit, because The Hobbit was written in the 1930s and was released, and the world was rather different in the 30s. And then, even though we are talking about the 1950s, Britain was still having rationing into the 1950s. My father-in-law can still remember being a very, very young boy, finally remembering that sweets were no longer being rationed. He was a very little boy at that time, but sweets, candy, was rationed after World War II. Children had to patiently wait in line for their gobstopper or whatever, piece of chocolate, etc. How terrible is that? So yeah, one of the other things that was being rationed was paper. And Tolkien always expected Lord of the Rings to have been one book, there just wasn't enough paper to print lots of copies of one book, so he had to spread it over three years, chop it into three chunks, and that's why we get a trilogy. And it's probably the most famous literary trilogy ever. Yes, there are other literary trilogies, but most of those are after Lord of the Rings. And if you like, this whole thing about three being the magic number kind of comes from Lord of the Rings. He did have an argument with his publisher about the name of the third book, Return of the King, 
arguing that kind of gives away the ending. And I don't disagree with him. But Lord of the Rings was a literary sensation. It's always been a bestseller. Every single decade, it is still selling millions upon millions of copies, and quite rightly too. And there have been attempts to try and turn some of his stuff into theatrical experiences before. There was, for various contractual reasons, an absolutely terrible, absolutely low budget, almost storybook telling of The Hobbit. It exists. The time of The Hobbit. Far away from all the troubles of dragons and treasure lived a certain hobbit. Like all hobbits, he lived in a hole in the ground. As a curiosity, watch it. It's not bad, but it is basically, it's still images. It's not even animated. There are no actors in it. It's basically an audio book that was put on in a few cinemas so that people could kind of retain rights. I'm not going to go into any more of it than that, but it's a, like I say, curiosity. Watch it if you want. It's actually surprisingly short. Then in the 1970s, there was an attempt to turn Lord of the Rings into a two-part animated movie. There's that Mount Doom again, Mr. Frodo. See it? <sighs> what a fix. The one place in all the world that we don't want to see any closer, and that's the one place we're trying to get to. And I watched that first part multiple times. Jem, why didn't you watch the second part? They never made it. It was a huge flop. There were huge problems with it. I remember when I saw the Ents for a tree bib for the first time, I burst out laughing. That's not a good sign. And the orcs made us run all the way here, and when we couldn't run anymore, they carried us. And I cut our rope, ran into the forest, and we came to your hill. And, and... Ooh, a hasty word for something that has stood here since the world was shaped. For that point, when I was watching the Peter Jackson movies, remember, if you're the generation that sort of remember these films coming out in the cinema, you know, I loved the first movie. The movie was, first movie was sensational. And we all thought, wow, you know, that, that is just amazing. But there was a part of me going, until I see them nail the Ents, because I know how badly they can go wrong, then I know that this is going to be a masterpiece. And indeed, when I saw Treebeard, I went, oh, there's a sort of sigh of relief inside me. So, oh, this is as good as I think it is. And some people have said what the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the very early 2000s was is the equivalent of the Star Wars trilogy in the 70s and 80s for that generation. And I think that's a really good comparison. And both of them had problems trying to sort of capture lightning in a bottle second time round. The Lord of the Rings movies made a ton of money and the third one won a record equaling 11 Oscars. Beat that, people. You know, Marvel Cinematic Universe per movie, apart from the Avengers ones, you, even today you have difficulty matching that amount of money per movie, and you certainly don't bring in slews of Oscars as well. So of course there was going to be uh, The Hobbit being turned into movies, and that's what happened a few years later. One of the earliest films that my youngest son saw, he was only about like four or five, when the last Hobbit movie came out. He'd already seen the others on like DVD, and he was he was just captivated by it. He particularly loved the Goblin King. We had multiple Goblin Kings in sort of Lego form and little figure form. And there was even a cuddly Goblin King. And yeah, so we took him to see it. It's a pretty intense movie for a child that size. And he was utterly silent throughout the whole movie. And I remember looking at my wife thinking, oh my God, have I emotionally scarred him? And then I looked at him at the end and went, what did you think of that? 
And he looked at me and then his face just broke into a huge smile. And he goes, that was the best thing I've ever seen. So he's a huge fan. And my boys do sometimes argue. In fact, if they're listening to this in the car or whatever, they might even go, dad, no, it's definite. It's definite. I, I'm not quite sure where they land right now, but they, they're the generation which argue that the Hobbit films are even better than Lord of the Rings, which I'm going to say is heresy. But just to bring another member of my family into this, as my sister said, the problem with the Hobbit movies is they came out after Lord of the Rings. If they'd come out first, we would have thought that they were pretty darn good. And they are very good fantasy movies. Don't believe me? Have a look at all the other fantasy movies and how many of them failed. There were loads in the 80s and most of them failed. You know, Conan the Barbarian. I suppose nothing hurts you. Only pain. Was an okay film. You know, Schwarzenegger was the special effect in that one. Beastmaster, Krull, you know, these are all guilty pleasures. There's a special place in my heart for Krull, and I know a lot of other people kind of love that cult classic, but let's be honest, it's not as good as Lord of the Rings, okay? And there are others as well, but Lord of the Rings really was just a masterclass of like how to turn something fantastical into something that would be a huge sensation around the world. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. This episode is sponsored by Dark Fantastic Mills. Dark Fantastic Mills produces scenery and terrain for tabletop role-playing and battle games. Things like Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons, but there are many more out there. And what they do is they have a number of fantastical types of scenery. For example, they might have a ruined temple complex, they might have towers, and they have sci-fi elements as well. There's an entire ruined vehicle that you can use as a fighting base around the Star Wars game, for example. They've got lots of things, and you can find it all at darkfantasticmills.com. Or indeed, if you want to see generally what they're up to, it's dark underscore fantastic on Twitter. But the great news is, because they are the official sponsors here of Condensed Histories, that when you go to the checkout, there is a promo code. If you type in condensed, that's it, just condensed as in condensed histories, then you get 10% off your purchase. So go and check out darkfantasticmills.com now. But after The Hobbit, what's left to be done? After all, in Tolkien's lifetime, he did two books set in Middle-earth. But in 1977, a few years after he died, his son, Christopher Tolkien. Oh, by the way, J.R.R. Tolkien. We all call him J.R.R. Tolkien. His first name's John. Not quite as exotic as the J.R.R. So, John wrote two books, but John was so obsessed with this world that he wrote tons of background material. Indeed, the thing, and I mentioned this in the other episode, the thing that kind of blew my mind about Lord of the Rings as it blew everybody's mind when they first read it is this is all clearly made up. But then there's the appendices, just page after page on like things like the dwarven language. I remember sort of like trying to write my name in dwarven runes and like family trees and all this other stuff. It's amazing, the detail and depth there. And this is the thing, Tolkien invented the fantasy genre. No Lord of the Rings, you get no Dungeons and Dragons, you get no Warhammer, you get no Game of Thrones, all this other stuff absolutely goes straight back to Lord of the Rings. It's that influential, and that's why it is 
probably the most important book from the 20th century because how many other books created an entire genre and in a genre that makes money and entertains millions of people? Obviously, some of this fantasy is extremely well written. Some of it is complete dreck. But the point is this incredible t attention to detail. And there'd been nothing like that before. Now, to be clear, there have been epic stories before. Think of the Mort d'Arthur. The thing about King Arthur is, while there was fantastical elements in it, like magic, for example, and Merlin, it's set in our world. It's not set in an imaginary world. And there are other stories. I'm thinking perhaps things like Cinderella or the Little Mermaid or whatever, where there are fantastical creatures, but those are fairy stories. They don't have the depth of lore, L-O-R-E, that Tolkien sort of delved into. So, in 1977, Christopher Tolkien, who is J.R.R. Tolkien's son, edited stuff together and came up with the Silmarillion. And this is exactly what die-hard Lord of the Ring Tolkien fans wanted. This is where we get more of the background. We knew that what we are seeing in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were events from the Third Age, and the events of Lord of the Rings ends the Third Age with the destruction of the Ring, which takes us into the Fourth Age, of which we know a few little bits and bobs. Things like, for example, Frodo going to the Grey Havens, and actually later on Sam does as well, because he was a, briefly a ring bearer too. So basically you find out what happens next with the main characters. You know, Aragorn lived for many more years and married Arwen, all that kind of good stuff. So we know a few little bits and bobs about the Fourth Age. But how did all this stuff start? Sauron clearly had come from something. Let's find out what that something was. And so the Silmarillion takes us through the age of the creation of Ea, that's the universe of Middle-earth, and Valinor. And we then have the sort of the demigods or the angels, whatever you want to use as, a, as an analogy, coming down and creating life and arguing amongst themselves. And then we get into the First Age and the Second Age, leading into the Third Age. And this stuff was truly epic. Now, if you thought Lord of the Rings was dry, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because this was never meant to be a book, as in, let's read these stories. Instead, it reads more like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. We have statements of who was where and when and there was a battle and there was much destruction and all this kind of stuff and it reads like a history book and a history book written by somebody who is allergic to adjectives this is just fact after fact although this is all made up for the record and there were some amazing stories in there would you like to see multiple Balrogs fighting in a battle, one of which crushes the King of the Elves, but the King of the Elves has a sharp helmet and stabs him with it, so that both of them go down. Doesn't that sound amazing? Turns out Sauron was the lieutenant of the really big evil Morgoth, and if you think Sauron was powerful, well, Sauron was his most trusted lieutenant. That gives you an idea how powerful and evil Morgoth was. Orcs turned out to have been twisted, tortured elves, and just, just, endless amounts of really interesting idea. The, the, the history of the dragons and where the Palantirs come from. Oh, it's all meaty stuff. So that stuff, after all the appetite, more than a decade, there had been Lord of the Rings movies and Hobbit movies and video games and all this other good stuff attached to it, but there'd been nothing on TV. There'd been no like animated series or anything like that. So 
people knew that if they were going to actually do it and do it right, Peter Jackson had really set the standards high. So when are we going to have the money and time to turn this into something like TV? And that's where we come on to TV history. Because while I've mentioned it many times before, yes, we living in a golden age of TV, some other things had to be moved on the chessboard to make this happen. Queen to E5. That's totally barbaric. That's wizard's chess. So I'm actually going to mention Rome in two very different ways. First of all, in the early 2000s, HBO created a TV show called Rome, which was kind of the story of Julius Caesar and Octavius, later Caesar Augustus, spoiler, I don't know, and also things like Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Princess Cleopatra, sir, daughter of the two rams, mistress of Sedge and B. And if you look into that, it's a really interesting show. I don't know, maybe I'll do a whole episode on it at some point. But they were told in the second season, that's it, you're very expensive, we're going to stop there. But it was like The Sopranos, it was very adult, people swore, there was adult content, very bloody at times, but people applauded. So this, the, you know, I, Claudius, is a highly respected British production of Roman life, if you like, but it had BBC money from the 1970s and 80s, okay? It was limited in its budget. Whereas Rome looked truly cinematic. It was very expensive. They made some mistakes. But what was there? I find it very frustrating. What, what we got was good. But knowing what it could have been, it makes me kind of like it a little bit less. But if you like, it was a proof of concept that people were willing to watch long running, very epic stories with loads of characters with various bits of sex and violence in it as well. So, without Rome, we wouldn't have had Game of Thrones. So there's an absolute dotted line, both made by HBO, and yeah, so Rome sort of set up Game of Thrones, and again, when Game of Thrones came out, it sent a shockwave through the whole of TV. Who else was going to come up with something that grand in scale and scope and size? It was amazing and immense. And the thing I'd like to say is, I know a lot of people were disappointed by the final series. I wasn't. When people turn around and say the very last, you know, who actually wins the Game of Thrones, as it were, it's like, oh, that doesn't work for me. It's like, it would be a problem if there's another series. But as an ending, it works fine. And by that point, the hype had been so high, they were never going to please everybody anyway. But the point I want to make is the Battle of Winterfell, whatever you may think of that in terms of the story with the White Walkers and all that kind of stuff, the point is that came out within weeks of Avengers Endgame. And it's like, you're talking about one of the biggest movies of all time versus TV. Back in the 1960s, no comparison. It would have been whatever epic spectacle was on in the movie theater, something like Spartacus, for example. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! Whereas there's no way TV could come to even 10% of that in terms of epic scale. But the thing is, the Battle of Winterfell held its ground against cinema, against the movies. I'm not saying it was quite as big or as epic, but it was up there. It was blow for blow matching them. Might have lost perhaps overall, but it was still super impressive. So that's where we'd got to with cinema. And indeed, we are now talking about series of Game of Thrones costing a hundred plus million dollars. That's movie budget. Obviously, they got us eke it out over like 10 or 8 episodes, 
But the point is, we're now talking about serious money in TV, which just didn't exist, let's say, 20 years earlier than that. Again, what's all of this got to do with Lord of the Rings? Well, after Game of Thrones finished, whatever, again, people might have thought of the ending, there was no big fantasy show on TV. People might say, oh, yeah, well, there was The Witcher from Netflix. Come on. That's, that's small fry compared to Game of Thrones. There was no room, and indeed it was dangerous to spend that amount of money. But Amazon has pretty much unlimited pockets. And what Amazon did is they wanted to go into the Silmarillion. Let's give people the things that they have been dreaming about for 50 years. Let's show them the golden second age. When it was originally discussed that they were going to create something and it was going to be a prequel, I heard some people saying, oh, it's going to be the young story of Aragorn. And I just thought, why? Nothing was happening then. Go back to the second age where you got the forging of the rings, where you got Sauron still with a physical form called Anatar, where brilliantly the idea is that he could appear as an incredibly sort of beautiful, charismatic man, showing you that evil isn't always sort of like lurking on a skull of thrones, that evil can look lovely but still be utterly malevolent. It's a brilliant and kind of timeless idea about the problem or seductive nature of evil. And that's exactly what they went for. Good for them. Good. The thing is, though, some of the, you've got the Lord of the Rings rights held with the Tolkien estate. You've got some of the designs which are pre-Peter Jackson's. All this stuff was in various different companies. And if you were going to buy it, it was going to cost you a fortune. Amazon had that fortune. Now, I hope you're sitting down for this because what they did is pull together everything. Amazon, to produce this TV series, now is not stopped in any way. You know, unlike the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they have to ask Sony nicely to borrow Spider-Man. Amazon doesn't have to ask anybody to borrow anything from the Tolkien estate. They can do whatever they want, whether or not they're gonna is a different story. But to do all of that before they've even paid writers to start writing ideas or hire a camera crew or actors or any kind of special effects before they had done nothing. Just to set the scene, they spent $200 million. Now, again, that's the budget of a major blockbuster, and yet they hadn't even made anything yet. Yes, Lewis and I were just discussing how you and Jon Snow both know nothing. Because the backstory on my box office is brilliant. Got my children making millions off my Silmarillions, and I'm more rock and roll than you ever been. So that is TV history, and because of that, Amazon is quite rightly saying this is going to be five series. And in total, it's going to cost probably a billion to actually make these five series. And that doesn't surprise me when you spent 200 million before you've even started filming. And obviously this is going to lead, a, lead to a lot of special effects, a lot of characters. But like Game of Thrones and like Rome and like all these other ones, one of the ways they tend to save money is it's not starring Tom Cruise and Will Smith and other people, you know, big name stars who are already going to come and cost you like 20 million or something like that. That's not to say they don't have good actors, but they're not household names. Sorry, Lenny Henry, you're not that well known in America. I've followed your career for a very long time, but I know that you're now very much a serious actor rather than a comedian. But yeah, you're not Tom Cruise or Will Smith, with all due respect. But I, I do love you and I love the way that you supported Watchmen back in the 80s. Very cool of you. Just a brief aside there. We didn't see Gondor, we didn't see Numenor, we didn't see anything. We were just in the woods eating big rabbits. Okay, the people 
are a little bit cheaper. Same with Game of Thrones, okay? But some of these people's names are made, will be made through this show. No doubt the Galadriel actress, for example. But anyway, this is an amazingly ambitious show. Whatever you may think of the acting. Again, there are already some Lord of the Rings gatekeepers and stuff like that who are saying, oh, well, this didn't happen that way and all that person's made up. Well, all of it's made up. But the thing is, the second age goes over thousands of years. That's not a problem if you've got elves because they are immortal, so they can happily sit around for 200 years till the next bit happens. But if, as soon as we've got hobbits or men, they kind of have similar life cycles. Dwarves are long-lived, but lived till about seven, 800 years. So again, you know, we're going to have to have father-son type stuff. So the point is they're condensing the story into less time, and I'm okay with that. Because do you know what? We have literally never seen... It has taken decades to get the Third Age right. We have literally never seen the Second Age portrayed in moving picture form. And well done to it. In the first episode of Rings of Power, we actually see Galadriel's brother, Finrod. Now, he's in the Silmarillion. This is a story set in the First Age. Now, we're in the Second Age in Rings of Power, and all the Lord of the Rings stuff happens at the very end of the Third Age. So we're talking thousands of years before all of this stuff happened. But Finrod's really interesting because he goes off on an adventure with various people and gets captured by Sauron and is basically incarcerated and tortured and basically killed by werewolves. And you actually see him sort of all slashed up and dead and Galadriel mourns over him. And that's a great story. But first things first, we've never really seen the Second Age at all in any kind of Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth media before. So 10 out of 10 for them for even glimpsing some of the stuff from the first age and then going into the second age. My brother gave his life hunting the enemy. His task is now mine. Actually, moving on to a little bit of history, I know I've been going on and on. To, I look, I have hopefully proven to you that this is a bit of TV history. It's going to be a long time till anybody spends more than this Lord of the Rings series on a TV show, even for a movie for that matter. Billion dollars? That's a lot of money. But the other thing is that in the Third Age, when you think of things like Minas Tirith and places like that, these are decayed. You've got Denethor, who is looking after, basically. There, there is no King of Gondor, hence why there's the Return of King and why Aragorn, son of Arathorn, turns up and there's the hoo-ha with Denethor. Maybe you weren't paying too much attention to that, but particularly in the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings movies, which is, in my opinion, is the best version of the Lord of the Rings movies, you get various references to the Palantir, for example, and also various ruins. There's sort of more of a conversation about them. Who built these ruins? And, and so on and so forth. Well, this is where we can absolutely tie it back to something like the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons, because the Roman Empire, good and bad, has been the point of reference for all of Europe for the best part of 2000 years. When it finally faded, basically in the fifth century AD in the West, I'm well aware it continued in the East, it was kind of forgotten about. It's worth remembering that the very last emperor of the Western Roman Empire, Romulus Augustulus, he was a teenage boy, he was 
kicked to one side by barbarians who didn't even want to be called emperor anymore. They created the new title of King of Italy because emperor by the late 400s meant nothing. Let's come up with something that actually means something and I am King of Italy. I'm the king of the world! <laughs> That's a thing I definitely own rather than a theoretical empire that doesn't actually exist anymore and hasn't for generations. But then we get this period of, of not so much decline, and I want to be careful about this. There's this period that has become known as the Dark Ages, particularly in the, amongst the Victorian historians. That's not fair at all to these people. This was a dark age, without law and without order. But they just had different priorities. They had different things to worry about. But they lived sometimes in the ruins of this once great civilization. And that's what we're seeing in the Third Age. Rohan didn't exist. Gondor didn't exist. These are the echoes of a much greater Numenor empire, far more energetic and advanced civilization that has obviously gone into decline over the millennia. And so we're seeing humanity in their prime. The elves actually had a prime in the first age, but in the second age, they are still strong. Whereas by the third age, they basically almost faded away to nothing. The word elf, by the way, Anglo-Saxon, you get this things like Ethelred and Ethelfleda and people like that. This A-E-T-H, Ethelstan, is the first king of England. That Ethel at the beginning is elf in Anglo-Saxon. And while it literally means elf, it kind of means semi-divine. It means that, you know, you get that Ethel bit into the royal family. To show you when people talk about Alfred the Great, why doesn't he have the Ethel bit? Well, if you look at the rest of his family, almost everybody ahead of him, including the girls, all have the Ethel bit. But he, because he's like the seventh in line, clearly mum and dad just thought, nah, he's, he's never going to become king. So let's just call him Alfred. Yeah, that'll do. He'll be, he'll be fine. So yeah, but he ended up becoming a king. So there we go. So that's a direct use of language. Languages have a flavor to me, which I, I never understand people saying, saying for instance, this is awfully dry and dull because a new language to me is, is just like taking a new wine or a new sweet beet or something. I mentioned dwarvish runes. They're Viking runes. They're the same, including, by the way, how you would pronounce them. So Tolkien just snuck that in. When it comes, however, to the Elvish language, that's just sort of made up by himself with his own specific alphabet and linguistical structures to it. Amazing bit of imagination, let's call it that, and technical ability to create several different languages. Just well done, Tolkien. You're a bit of a hero of mine, to be honest. So all of this is going on, and this idea of like the fall of Numenor and the rise of Gondor and also the rise of Rohan is a sign that Tolkien understands the ebb and flow of history. None of this happened because this is all in a fantastical world. However, it absolutely is a mirror compared to what Western Europe was all about through basically the two centuries or the maybe the third age of humanity in Europe from basically 1 AD to the year 2000, or let's say the 1970s when Tolkien actually passed away. Practically always a human story, it's practically always about one thing, aren't they? Death, inevitability of death. All men must die, but for every man his death is an accident. And even if he knows it and consents to it, an unjustifiable violation. That is what's so impressive about this. It's, it's pulling together so many things 
that if they didn't happen, this show simply wouldn't exist. I'm going to say, just be, just be pleased it's here. Okay. Now, as you can tell, I haven't told you much about the actual plot and what's going on in it. And I don't want to give away too much of that. I'm going to just throw this out. Look, as always, do I'd love to get your thoughts on this show at Gem Deducci on Twitter. You can speak to me there, come up with some other ideas. That'd be fine. Lovely. Thank you. Hi. Please click subscribe. Please give us a review if you can. But the other thing you can always do is tell somebody about this podcast. Tell a mate, tell a family friend, say, I'm really enjoying this. I think you'll like it too. Thank you for spreading the love. Don't forget to go on to darkfantasticmills.com to get all your fun scenery and terrain for all those great games you play. And thanks to the sponsor, we can put in the promo code CONDENSED to get you 10% off your purchases. A last bit to say that, look, there's more going to be going on with the show. I know, you know, I've read bits of the Silmarillion, really, it's very impenetrable, but we're going to obviously, as the as the, even the trailers showed, we're going to see the making of the rings, which we already know kind of what happens with them. We're going to see the rise of Sauron, and eventually he's going to be sort of seductively corrupting some of the men to follow him and indeed worship Morgoth. And then, if you like, the opening of Lord of the Rings, I'm guessing will probably be the end of this TV series, because you see that battle with elves and men join up to fight Sauron once and for all and destroy him. And it's that destruction of Sauron, although the ring itself is not destroyed, that ends the Second Age. And that, therefore, would be the perfect way to, to finish the TV series. Five series, I'm sure if it's a huge, huge hit, they can easily stretch it to six or seven series. There is that much information in all of Tolkien's Silmarillion and more. There are some of his letters too. I love the, the idea that his collected letters have been published. Obviously, these are letters to do with his creation of Middle-earth. But, you know, it, it amuses me that it might be volume 27 is his view of the various pub lunches he'd been eating down the road. There isn't such a volume, but there are for the hardcore Tolkien fans. There is just so much information. It's almost like being a medieval historian. There are multiple chronicles. Sometimes they're contradictory. Sometimes you can see the, the growing of a legend as, as it's evolved in letters and also shorthand in the Silmarillion and things like that. And then Christopher Tolkien sort of like maybe added a little bit more just to make it flow a bit better. So Christopher isn't as important as John. John was the guy who created this all, but Christopher is so important in terms of keeping the legacy going and keeping Middle-earth alive as an idea. So 10 out of 10 to him on that. I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much for listening. Another episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.